This is Judges 15, verse 1 through 3. After some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regards to the Philistines when I do them harm. Thank you. Well, good morning, church. Really good to see you, Jerry. Thanks. I hear you loud and clear. That's good. Appreciate that. Uh, it's really good to see you guys. Good to be with you. Um, my name is Shane. For any of you who are new, who I haven't had a chance to meet just yet, we are in the book of Judges, and uh, we're rounding the corner. We're getting close to the end here over the next several weeks, and right now we're, we've been, for the last couple of weeks, and we'll be for one more beyond this week, looking at the final judge in the book, and his name is Samson. So this is part three of four in our look at the life of Samson. And what we're going to see today, we're going to watch things go from bad to worse for this judge, of whom it had been promised some pretty great things, including that he would help save Israel from the hand of their enemies. But before we go any further, let me pray for our teaching time here, and then we'll get going from there. Lord God, you are good. Your word is true. So encourage our hearts with your truth this morning, Lord. Change us through what you teach us, and I pray you'd be gentle with us as you do. God, I pray you'd help me uh, as, I, um, as I teach, as I preach this morning, that I would be faithful to you uh, in what I say. And I pray that you'd lead and protect each one of us gathered here in your name, both today and each day after. And I pray all this, God, through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, uh, the title of the sermon today is Samson's Revenge. And uh, I always think of roller coasters. I don't know, like it seems like a good roller coaster name. We used to live right near Six Flags when we were in Texas. And I don't know, Samson's Revenge seems like a good roller coaster. Um, But I'm curious what comes to your mind when you think about the word revenge. By definition, revenge is harm done to another in turn for what they have done to you or others. It's retribution, it's payback. And revenge can take us to some pretty dark places. We live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. And sins are committed uh, against us. Um, That's just a commonplace thing. And because of that, if we're honest, feelings of revenge aren't totally foreign to us, are they? There was a French artist in the mid-1800s, Paul Gauguin, who famously uh, was quoted as saying, Life being what it is, one dreams of revenge. I feel like I can resonate with that. I feel like that resonates with probably lots of us. But who is it or what is it that you think about when you think about revenge? I know for me, if I dig a little bit deeper beneath the roller coaster, beneath the surface, uh, places where I can at times sense the desire for revenge creeping into my own heart. We had this uh, incident just a month or so ago out here in the parking lot during one of our Sunday services where uh, some folks had come by, broken a bunch of windows while we were all in here worshiping Jesus, stealing possessions of people who are here to worship the Lord. Um, that gets my blood pumping a little bit. That was frustrating. My windows was one of the ones broken. Um, but not just because of that. For all of us, uh, that can stir up things uh, in my heart. Or I can find the desire for revenge creeping in when I think about the times where I hear that a classmate has bullied or said something mean to one of my boys. Or when I think about the suffering of my mother uh, during the younger years of my growing up at the hands of an alcoholic stepdad. 
or when I think about the man who abused Stephanie, my wife, when she was a little girl. I can go to dark places pretty quickly, desiring revenge when I think about things like this. And what's common to these, and most human thoughts of revenge, are that they're motivated by a hurt or pain that we experience, And they're motivated by a desire to see others feel that same kind of pain through some kind of self-curated form of our own justice. But what about you? Who is it? What is it that comes to mind for you, past or present, that raises up feelings of revenge in your own heart? What acts of revenge, big or small, have already found their way onto your list of acceptable responses to those who hurt you or wrong you or sin against you? We're going to talk about that a little bit today as we go on. The reality is that none of us is a stranger to revenge, yet the truth, biblically speaking, is that revenge belongs to the Lord, not to you and me. Revenge belongs to the Lord, not to you and me. And that's the central proposition of the message today. That's our big idea for where we're going And in Judges 15, where we'll be spending most of our time today, we're going to see that Samson knows a good bit about revenge. In fact, if revenge were a sport, Samson would be playing professionally somewhere, and he'd probably have a multi-year shoe deal as well. He's just that good at it. But in the beginning, this wasn't the case at all for Samson, was it? Back in chapter 13, where we were introduced to Samson, expectations had been really high of what this final judge of Israel might accomplish. You might recall from a couple weeks back, um, this is in chapter 13, where the angel of the Lord had come and he'd told this Israelite couple that they would conceive and bear a son who'd be set apart, who'd be devoted to God and to being God's servant, even from the womb. The angel of the Lord said this son would also be a rescuer to Israel who would begin to save God's people from the hands of the Philistines. Then in chapter 14, we saw how Samson's desires got the best of him and caused him to intermarry with a Philistine woman who didn't believe in Samson's God and how those same desires then caused him to abandon the Nazarite vow he was born into, to abandon his devotion to God and his calling to God in all sorts of ways, culminating in the vengeance-inspired murder of 30 Philistines and the abandonment of his would-be wife. And that leads us to where we start today in chapter 15, verse 1. And I'll read that for us. After some days, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. So remember, Samson had bailed on his wife during this multi-day wedding ceremony slash party that was a common tradition for the Philistines. He had felt manipulated and betrayed by his would-be wife and by her countrymen. And so he'd gone on this killing spree and then fled town to his father's house. But he did so without consummating the marriage, which would have made it official and legal, and also without stating any intention of whether he was going to return or not before he made this hasty and rage-filled exit. But now in verse 1, now that his anger has cooled down a little bit, he goes to visit his would-be wife. And it says it's at the time of the wheat harvest. So this is probably sometime in the spring, perhaps May. And he's brought her a young goat as a peace offering, as one does after a murderous spree and then an abandoning of your wife at the altar, right? Okay, so picking up then in the second half of verse 1. And he said, Samson said, I will go in to my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him, Samson, to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you had utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. 
Now, the language hated her here in the Hebrew, it's similar to what we find in constructions uh, attached in other Old Testament texts to do with divorce. And so what Samson's would-be father-in-law is really saying is, I I thought you divorced her. Or in this case, "I I thought you abandoned her at the altar and this whole thing was off. And then her father says to Samson, since you left, I gave her to your companion. Now, companion here is the same word used a little bit earlier to describe the 30 Philistine wedding attendants that had been given to Samson in chapter 14. So basically, he'd given his daughter away in marriage to one of Samson's wedding attendants, one of the Philistines. Now, why would he do this? Well, if you think about it, this is probably something that was probably pretty embarrassing to his family. With all that had happened with Samson, he's probably trying to save face a little bit. And then his father, scrambling a bit, says something to Samson like, um, well, here's, here's her sister. And he says, Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Take her instead. But stubborn Samson, he won't be placated by the offer of anyone else, will he? You'll remember last week in chapter 14, we saw Samson choose the one that he really wanted to marry, even against his parents' wishes and warnings, and despite his vow and calling before God not to intermarry with those outside the community of God's people. It's worth us looking back at that. Let's go back there really quick. This is Judges 14, starting at verse 2. Then he, Samson, came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? That you must go and choose someone outside of the people of God is what he's saying? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She is right in my eyes. So only she, only this one was right in Samson's eyes. Yet now in chapter 15, he's being told he can't have her. And in fact, that she legally belongs to another man now. And so without any thought of responsibility that he might have in any of this, his sinful and vengeful heart is kindled again. Then verse 3. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Now, the Hebrew word here uh, for innocent, it also means blameless. And I don't know about you, but as I look at the things that he's even done so far and what we've read, it's really hard to see him as being innocent or blameless in all this. But this is the sickness of a heart that's filled with anger, a heart that's filled with an unquenchable thirst for revenge. And this is a sickness that can make one blind to our offenses against God and blind to the reality of ongoing sin. And if we're honest, this type of sickness isn't really something that's completely foreign to us. And how we can be blinded to God's truth and blinded to reality when we find ourselves isolated and full of bitterness and anger and revenge. So Samson has told his wife, had been told that his wife has been given to someone else. And anger and vengeance fill his heart again. And the fruit of this, then, is this threat of violence and destruction against his almost father-in-law and the Philistine people. And then verses 4 and 5 explain the plot of Samson against them now. Verse 4. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail, and he put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Now I know what you're thinking. Like, who hasn't taken some torches, tied them to your foxes, let them run through your neighbor's yard once in a while, right? I mean, this sounds so ludicrous to us. 
But apparently this is not completely foreign territory uh, in the scope of history. There's one example I found as I was getting ready for today uh, of a general from Carthage named Hannibal who was in a battle against the Romans and he had tied torches to the horns of cattle and then let them run through the towns and the fields to accomplish a similar result. And the desired result here is really clear. In both cases, it's the destruction of crops and property. Now keep in mind, this is an agrarian culture, an agricultural community. Farming was the primary economic factor for most regions in this day. So destroying people's crops was in effect declaring war on these people, in this case the Philistines. Verse 5 says that the stacked grain, the standing grain, and the olive orchards were all wiped out. Um, maybe it might be helpful for us to, to understand what those are. The stacked grain was this probably the processed grain that was waiting to be moved into storage or already in storage. The standing grain would be the grain that was in the field still yet to be processed. And then when it says olive orchards there, it means olive orchards, but also probably vineyards as well. So through Samson's vengeance, basically all agricultural production in the whole region had now been ground to a halt. In all likelihood, according to some historical records, his actions either brought on or made significantly worse a famine that was in the region. Now, this is from a 4th century writer and commentator, Ephraim the Syrian, and he says, Just as those who travel about in the pathless desert tremble at serpents on the ground, so were the Philistines terrified of Samson. And it was during the great famine which God had brought upon the Philistines that Samson burned their crops by means of foxes, for fire was carried on their bodies like a rider on its horse. So the Philistine crops and economic hopes have just been burned down by Samson. And they respond to all this just as we might expect. They do. They see it as an act of war and they seek their revenge, which is where we pick things up in verse 6. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he, the woman's father, has taken his wife, Samson's wife, and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Yeah. So the Philistines now, they've sent a really clear message to Samson in response to the destruction that he's brought about with the foxes. Now, we're not given a lot of the details on this, but apparently there was some sort of quick makeshift investigation and court and judgment that has occurred, and very quickly they come to the conclusion that uh, it would be Samson's would-be father-in-law and wife that would be judged as well, in addition to Samson, and so they are burned to death by the Philistines as a result. Now, there's a touch of irony here, if you can remember back a little bit. Samson's would-be wife and family are put to death by fire, which was the very death threatened against her back in chapter 14 from before the wedding ceremony. Do you remember? Samson's Philistine wedding companions, they had said to her in verse 15, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. And remember, the result in this scene then is the manipulation of Samson by his would-be wife and then the vengeful, murderous rage of Samson in response to being manipulated by her and by her Philistine countrymen. So taken together here, in chapter 14, Samson has legally lost his wife as a result of his vengeance and rage. And now in chapter 15, he loses her physically to death through his latest revenge tantrum. So we've had Samson's revenge, then the Philistines respond in revenge, and now Samson's revenge again. Can you guess what might happen next? Yeah. In an unsurprising turn of events in verse 7 and 8 then, Samson threatens revenge again in response to the killing of his would-be wife. Verse 7, 
And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Edom. So basically Samson is saying here, Now that you've done this, I swear I'm going to get even with you, and I won't stop until I do. And then in verse 8, he immediately puts those words into action, the text saying that he struck the Philistines gathered there hip and thigh with a great blow. Now, hip and thigh, that's not a familiar expression to us, but what it probably is is some kind of an idiom or metaphor for, uh, for wrestling, but in a really violent way. And so what's going on here is that there was this vicious and overwhelming great blow that Samson dealt against the Philistine people there. But beyond just this idea of a strong wrestling move, the idea is that he just slaughtered them. That's the idea behind that metaphor. Then at the end of verse 8, Samson departs the scene of the slaughter to a somewhat secret place, probably like some kind of a cave of sorts that was maybe known only to the locals, it would seem. And then in verses 9 and 10, what happens next is equally unsurprising, more revenge. The Philistine response had already played out against Samson's would-be wife and family, but now they turn their attention to Samson directly. Picking up in verse 9. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? They said, we have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. So apparently off camera somewhere between verses 8 and 9, the Philistines come upon the group of people that Samson had slaughtered, and now they vengefully turn towards Samson. They've rallied troops, and they've encamped in Judah, which is apparently still a predominantly Jewish part of this really mixed uh, cultural landscape at this time. And they've conducted an opening raid against Samson's people there at a place called Lehi, which means jawbone, which is a point we'll come back to here in just a little bit. And with that, what had been a personal feud up to this point between Samson and the Philistine people now has turned into a larger international crisis, hasn't it? But this isn't really that surprising if we can remember back to what was said in chapter 14, verse 4, about God's sovereign workings in the midst of Samson's disobedience, where we're told that God was at work despite his disobedience, using it, in fact, to stir up aggressions between Samson and Israel and the Philistines. And it seems like now, in chapter 15, we've kind of arrived at that point, doesn't it? Then in verse 10, the Israelites respond to this attack by saying, in essence, hey, what did we do to you? And the Philistines tell them, we're here to get revenge on Samson and to do to him what he did to us and to our people. Now verse 11. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock at Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. So 3,000 of Samson's people go down to his secret cave and they say to him, Hey, jerk, don't you know what you've done? In case you've forgotten, they're like rulers over us. And now you've gone and stirred up their anger and vengeance against us. And what's Samson's response? He's basically like, they started it. Real mature, Samson. So then the men of Judah, they say to Samson, we have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. And they said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. How is it? Shocking to anyone, 
just how quickly the men of Judah sell out Samson to the Philistines. We have to remember, these are the same Israelites, these men of Judah, who'd been instructed by Joshua way back when, at the beginning of our entry into the book of Judges, had been instructed by Joshua to fulfill the mandate given to them by God to inherit and occupy the land and to do so by driving out the enemy inhabitants in the land. And yet their response is to accommodate their foreign ruler, to embrace their own enslavement to this status quo. Their response is to neglect their birthright to the land that God had given them and to sell out the leader that God had brought them. What a tragic turn. What a tragic failure for God's people, Israel, who have now accommodated themselves to this culture of these foreign occupiers in every way that Joshua had warned them about and then some. So the men of Judah bind Samson with new ropes. And what that's meant to communicate to us is that they use the strongest ropes they could possibly find to bind him. And that's where we pick things up again in verse 14. When he came to Lehi, in other words, when the men of Judah brought up, abound Samson up from where he'd been hiding out, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. Now, flax is a plant, and so he's saying that those strong new ropes that we were just talking about, they became like plant stems tied around his wrists, basically. In fact, plant stems that quickly melted away. And then in verse 15, And then he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it. So fresh here probably means like it's still bloodied, probably still with chunks of flesh on it, which means he's breaking his Nazarite vow, again, by touching something dead, this donkey in this case which is just what he had also done in chapter 14 when he took honey from inside of the lion carcass, if you'll remember. Then verse 15 continues, And with it, the donkey jawbone, that is, he struck a thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. And as soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Remeth Lehi, which means jawbone hill. So here we are in verses 14 through 17. We've got Samson bound, unarmed, about to be given up to his enemy by his own people who now finds himself supernaturally free. Then at that very moment, within arm's reach, there happens to be a weapon. And he picks it up. And then with it, he strikes down a thousand Philistine men. And then in verse 16, a prideful Samson responds with a song, a victory song, where he declares, with the jawbone of a donkey heaps upon heaps, With the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. So he sings his victory song, and then this is immediately followed by a naming ceremony to memorialize this hill, basically, of Philistine corpses that he's now stacked up there, hence the name Jawbone Hill. Now, as I read that, like it's hard for me to know, like it's hard for us to know, I would assume, what to do with some of this. Samson seems to be so sinful, so full of rage, so prideful. So vengeful in his heart, and yet at several points in the Samson story, we're faced with God's direct intervention to help and aid him in victory, right? He seems like this pretty awful human being, and yet the angel of the Lord set him apart as God's chosen servant even before he was born. And then when a lion attacks him, God's spirit rushes on him and gives him aid and gives him victory. And then he's given over to his enemies, but God's spirit rushes upon him again and gives him an even greater victory than the last. Now this is 
kind of like what we were looking at last week. This is part of that crossroads we found ourselves in last week. The crossroads of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. That intersection of biblical truths that we must hold in tension, leaving room for mystery and leaving room for the truth that God's ways are not our ways, but God's ways are always good ways, even when we don't fully understand them. Well, let's keep going. Let's pick it up in verse 18 and see how the chapter ends. Verse 18, And he, Samson, was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called in Hakor, and it is in Lehi to this day. So here, three full chapters of Samson's life story in, he finally, for the first time that we're aware of, cries out to God, and what's he crying out for? Surely it's deliverance for all the people of Israel, right? No. Surely it's, he's crying out for forgiveness for himself, for all his vengeance in his heart and all his sinful disobedience against his calling to be set apart for God, right? No. No. What he cries out for is a drink of water. And while it's encouraging to see Samson cry out at all to God, his prayer is just as narcissistic, just as self-serving as the rest of his life has been, isn't it? He's concerned with his thirst, his fate, without any mention of anything or anyone else. But as I was preparing this part of the sermon, I got to thinking, do you think our prayers sound all that much different to God today? If you think about it, do your prayers reflect a greater focus and desire on God's will being done or on yours? Do our prayers reflect a greater concern for ourselves or for our neighbor and for the lost? Yet what is God's response to both Samson and to you and me? In verse 19, God answers Samson's whiny, self-serving, drama queen-esque plea with utterly undeserved favor. In grace and in love, God supplies Samson's need. He opens up this hollow place, a seam in a rock nearby probably, releasing water that had probably been there for who knows how long under these limestone layers there. And then Samson is revived as he drinks from this spring. And so in thanksgiving, he commemorates the occasion with another naming ceremony, this time calling the place in Hakor, which means the spring of the caller. Now who's the caller? Samson, the spring of the collar. Uh, so again, we've got this focus on himself as much or more than on God. Then in the final verse of the chapter, verse 20, we read, And he, Samson, judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. Now this at first seems like it might be the end of the story for Samson, but because we know back in Judges 13.1 that the Lord had given Israel into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years, not 20 that helps us see that verse 20 is really just a statement of intermission more than a statement of completion. And as we'll see, we get the, the next after the intermission part here uh, next week as we go into chapter 16. So that's our story. That's chapter 15. But beyond the story, there are lessons for us to learn from this cautionary tale from biblical history. And most of them, uh, it won't surprise you, in one way or another, uh, are born out of the biggest challenge that Samson faced throughout the chapter, which is his own vengeful heart. 
In fact, I think you'd agree, like almost everywhere we turn in our walk through chapter 15, Samson is either threatening revenge or executing on threats of revenge, right? But Sound City, does Samson's revenge, does, do any of his actual acts of vengeance seem to really solve any of his problems? No. Not even a little bit. And that's because revenge always leads to more of itself. Revenge always leads to more of itself, which is one of our application points for chapter 15. I found this great quote that kind of uh, encapsulates this idea. It's from a German philosopher back in the late 1700s, and he said this, Revenge is barren of itself. It is the dreadful food it feeds on. Its delight is murder, and its end is despair. Said another way, revenge always leads to revenge, which always leads to revenge, and so on. And this is what we've seen over and over again in the chapter, isn't it? Verse 4, Samson's revenge against his would-be wife and her family. Verse 6, Philistine revenge against Samson and his would-be family. Verse 7, Samson's revenge for the Philistine killing of his would-be wife. Verse 9, Philistine revenge against Samson for slaughtering of their people. At least these four times, and arguably a handful of other times, depending on how we count, we've got revenge, feeding revenge, in this never-ending cycle of hatred. Revenge always leads to more of itself. And that brings us to our second point, which is revenge belongs to the Lord, not to you and me. Revenge belongs to the Lord, not to you and me. And this point is so central to what Judges 15 is all about that it ends up being the big idea of our whole message today. But outside of revenge being so central to the text that we're in, there are other good reasons that might be important for us to talk a little bit about revenge in the church. Number one, it isn't really a topic that gets talked about in the church too much. So by itself, that makes it a good reason for us to talk about it. But number two, it's also worthwhile uh, for us to talk about revenge because culture teaches us a very different message about revenge than the Bible does, doesn't it? Let's consider that for a minute. What do we find in culture on the topic of revenge? Well, I tried to go back a ways, start somewhere not in the present, and um, I stumbled upon lots of quotes from uh, Shakespeare. And Shakespeare was known for really representing the culture that he was in at the time. And uh, we find that much of his work reflected uh, revenge-based themes, including that famous line from Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice, where the Shylock character says, If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? So culturally speaking, it would seem here, that revenge was an acceptable, even maybe expected response when you were wronged. In our day, Hollywood movies and television, uh, they promote much the same idea about revenge. They often glamorize it. They romanticize it. And they promote it even sometimes as like this redemptive act or it being noble at times, right? Our culture culture even promotes uh, the revenge philosophies of our celebrities as if they're modern-day proverbs. Famously, Frank Sinatra is quoted as saying, the best revenge is massive success. And then our own Eddie Vedder, who's quoted as saying, the best revenge is to live on and to prove yourself. And the two things that these quotes and all the other cultural things that we've talked about here as far as examples, the two things they all have in common is their focus on us and on ourselves as the revenge seeker. And relatedly, they all promote the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. So let's take a look at what the Bible says. Starting all the way back in Deuteronomy 32, where God declares, vengeance is mine and recompense. 
or vengeance is mine and I will repay, say some earlier translations of that verse. In Proverbs 20, we're instructed, do not say I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. In the book of Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews proclaims, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and who has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will be the one. The author of Hebrews is saying, He will be the one that will judge his people. Then in Romans 12, the Apostle Paul also makes God's instruction on this matter really, really clear to us in verse 17, saying, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And then in verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But maybe at this point you're saying to yourself, Okay, Scripture makes it really, really clear. There's a lot of scriptures that support this idea that um, vengeance is the Lord's and it's not for you and me. But I'm really not that vengeful, so maybe this part of the message really isn't much for me. To which I'd say, really? Let's test that a little. We said at the outset that revenge is seeking harm or retribution on another for what they've done to you or others. And we said that it's often motivated by a desire to see others feel the same kind of pain or hurt that we've felt. Right? So let's take this little self-test, and I'd ask you to assess this honestly. Ask yourself if this has been you. First, have you ever responded harshly or rudely to someone because of hurtful words they've said to you? Anyone feel like they're exempt from that? Have you ever shared any certain hand gestures of any kind to anyone while driving (laughs) that were meant to communicate what you think of that person who just cut you off? Have you ever offered a cutting personal response to a friend or a spouse or maybe one of your children that was meant to put them in their place or intentionally make them feel bad? Anybody guilty of that? Ever given someone you care about the silent treatment, withholding yourself from them as a way of punishing them? Married couples in the room Have you ever intentionally cut your spouse off, either physically or emotionally, in an attempt to hurt them or get back at them for something? Have you ever cheated on someone because you were cheated upon by them? Have you ever lied to someone because you were lied to by them? Have you ever rationalized your actions with the expression, they deserved it? Any of those resonate with anyone this morning? We can keep going. But I'm hoping that you're getting the idea by now that none of us, none of us, are immune from having vengeance in our hearts. And none of us are immune from running to revenge as a sinful coping mechanism for trying to do for ourselves what the scriptures say only belongs to God. Beloved, the Apostle Paul calls us. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, we may not be like Samson. Revenge may not be the hashtag that follows almost every action of our lives, the way it is so clearly for Samson. 
But we're all guilty of it to one degree or another. And the degree to which we are guilty of seeking to met out our own self-determined punishments for the hurts and sins done against us, that then is something that we need to repent of before God and before any who we've sought revenge against. Even if our acts against others have only been these more subtle, culturally acceptable means of revenge. So Sound City, in what ways do you need to repent to God for your attempts at usurping his role as the only one who can rightly avenge wrongs done against you? Sound City, who is it that you need to ask forgiveness of for the bitterness and revenge that you've harbored in your heart against them? Now, another question I got wondering about this week in all this was, why? Why is this true? Why might it be that revenge belongs to the Lord and not to us? He made us in his image, the scriptures say. He gave us rule and authority and dominion over creation, the Bible says. So why is revenge okay for him and not for you and me? And the simple answer to this, of course, is that it's because he's holy and we are not. He's holy and we are not. Back to Deuteronomy 32 again, Moses declares about God in verse 4, the rock, our God, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. I love that. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. But the same can't be said for you and me. Then in Psalm 18, 30, the psalmist says, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. But the same can't be said for you and me. Our ways are not always perfect and just. Our words don't always prove true. And this is why we must trust God and not culture when it comes to determining what punishment fits the crime for sins and wrongs done against us. Our attempts at revenge look like Samson's, sinful and selfish, whereas vengeance in the hands of our holy God always yields perfect justice. But then that just leads us to another question, which is, if personal vengeance only makes things worse, that was our first point, if revenge doesn't belong to us in the first place, that's the second point, then how are we to respond day to day when we experience the painful reality of being sinned against, being wronged, being hurt. Well, that's the good news. Because God gave us a model to follow in this, and his name is Jesus. And he's our model for rejecting revenge. Jesus is our model for rejecting revenge. Let me read this for us from 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So if we're looking closely, what we see here is that Jesus is absolutely everything that Samson wasn't. While Samson sinned against God and against his God-given calling and the vow that he had been, uh, that's been put upon him to keep him set apart from, uh, as God's servant, Jesus committed no sin. While Samson sought to deceive others time and time again, there was no deceit found in Jesus' mouth. 
While Samson, despised and vengefully retaliated against all who did even the smallest things against him, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten revenge, but instead continued entrusting himself to him, God the Father, who always judges justly. So the godly replacement for seeking revenge for ourselves is to follow the model of Jesus, not the model of Samson. But how do we do that, you might ask? What does it mean for us to respond to sin against us by entrusting ourselves to God, who always judges justly, as Peter has just said? Well, we could probably spend a month of Sundays answering this question, but for starters, what we do know is that for us to respond like Jesus when we're sinned against, we must trust, really trust, as he did, that it's someone else's job to see justice done. As disciples of Jesus, we need to truly believe that revenge is way above our pay grade. We must trust the scriptures are true when they say that all God's ways are justice and that the Lord is a God of justice and that we are blessed when we wait on him for the judgment of those who've sinned against us. And to respond to sins against us the way Jesus did, we must actually trust his example. We must actually trust in his ability to judge all things justly. So it's a faith thing. It's a faith thing. Do we believe that? And as we move toward the end of our time this morning, let me offer one more way that we can seek to follow Jesus as our model for rejecting revenge. And it begins with us remembering the good news of how God has dealt with us in Christ. The psalmist reminds us in Psalm 103 that God does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. And the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 5 that God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sound City, if you're here today and you've put your trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, as your rescuer from the penalty of your sins, then you will spend eternity with God because he dealt with you in a way that you don't deserve. He gave you grace when you deserved condemnation. He gave you new life when you deserved a death sentence. He let his own son, Jesus, be reviled and killed on a cross so you wouldn't have to be. Friends, the most compelling reason for you to reject seeking revenge on those who have hurt you is that God has not sought revenge against you for your sins against him. Praise Jesus that we have not been treated as we deserve. Amen? Instead, what have we gotten? Instead, we've been spoiled with grace upon grace, and despite our wretched and Samson-esque behavior, we've been forgiven. So shouldn't we similarly deal with those who sin against us? Should we not leave revenge in the hands of our holy God and entrust ourselves in all things to him who always judges graciously and always judges justly? Yeah. Yeah. Sound City, as we continue to wrestle with how to understand, how to deal with the story of Samson, may we never forget that God continues to use Samson not because of any good in Samson, but because of his plan and because he said that he would. May we always remember that God has dealt similarly with us in Christ, not granting us salvation because of any good that we have done, but because in love and in grace he just decided to. And Sound City, as we 
leave here today, let it be as a people devoted to living out the example that we see in Jesus who did not repay evil for evil, but who in all things has entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that, as with Samson, you haven't treated us as we deserve. You've given us living water to drink that we might have life in you. And you've forgiven us, not because of our faithfulness, but because of yours. Thank you for sending us Jesus, God, to save us from the penalty of our sin and to give us an example of trust and faithfulness to follow. Stir our affections for you as we respond now. And we pray all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, we'll begin our time of response now. And so if our financial stewards would come, we'll go ahead and get started in our response through giving. Now, if you're new here, if you are a guest, it might be helpful for you to know that we see this time of giving as just as much a time of worship as any other part of our service. But if you're a guest, it's also important for you to know that you're under no obligation to give. We're really just glad that you're here. But for those of you who do desire to give, you know that one of the verses that we look to often as we think about and examine our hearts for how we might worship through giving, we look at 2 Corinthians 9-7, which says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so if you decide to give today, we'd ask that you give with that in mind. And if you have questions about how to give, there should be a little bit of information up on the screens for you. There's also information in your weekly at the bottom on how to give. Uh, or you can talk to the friendly folks out at the Connect desk after the service, and they can let you know all sorts of ways that you can give. Now, in a moment, you'll also see the communion element baskets coming around as well. And I'd ask that uh, if you're a Christian and you take one of those elements, that you would hold on to that until we get to pray here in a minute, and then we'll share those together. And in the meantime, let me share a few uh, questions, a few discussion questions and prayer points with you that have been drawn out of the message for hopefully uh, helping you in your community groups and in personal study this week. These are on your weekly as well, but I'll read them for us now. Number one, when has or when does the desire for revenge creep into your heart? What are the subtle ways that you have accepted vengeful responses in your daily life that you need to repent of? Number two, what is a vengeful response to life's hurts communicate about our understanding of God and or our faith in him? Number three, how does cultural accommodation impact our ability to worship and obey God? And then if you're up for a challenge, add part B of the question, uh, ask some other Christ followers to honestly share with you where they see cultural accommodation might be creeping into your life and into uh, and impacting your walk with Christ. Then number four, If Jesus is our model for how to respond when we are hurt and sinned against, what would that look like in your own life, and what would that mean would have to change? Now, we're also a praying people here at Sound City, so here's a couple prayer points to get you started this week as well. You can be praying that God would help us as individuals and as a church to always trust our ultimate longings for vengeance and justice to God. And then we'd ask that you'd also be praying that God would give us opportunities to share with others the love and salvation of our perfectly just and holy God who promises to right every wrong, to heal every hurt, and to justly judge the enemies of God's people. Now, we will be responding this morning, as I mentioned, uh, with the Lord's Supper as well, which the Bible speaks of as a memorial meal for all Christians, the bread reminding us of Jesus' body broken for us, And the juice reminding us of Jesus' blood that was shed for us. 
And the scriptures give us help in doing this in a, in a right way as well. And they do that uh, through the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11. And I'll read a little of that for us uh, while we're getting the elements passed. Starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, it looks like most of you have the elements by now. So let's do this. Let me pray for us. And then uh, after that, we'll also respond in song. And then you're welcome at that point to take the communion elements as you see fit. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I loved getting to read in your word this morning that your ways are justice. And so as your children, we rightly long for such things as well. That your ways are not our ways, and our ways are not holy. So as we respond to you now, let it be as those who are ever grateful that you have not dealt with us in the way that we deserve. And let us grow today as those who would extend that same grace and forgiveness to others as we follow the model of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.